to the book of Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. Uh, it is uh, really easy to find. It's the first book in the Bible, and then you just find uh, chapter 11. Um, in many ways, this, uh, this message today is a, continua- a continuation of a, a series that we had a number of months ago through Genesis 1 uh, through the first part of 11, although there are different themes, there are different ideas that are introduced in, uh, in starting in Genesis chapter 11, verse 10. Uh, we move on to the story of Abraham, which is almost the foundation for a lot of what we understand uh, throughout the Bible. So we're going to be in Genesis 11 today looking at the fact that God is in the details of your life. Even when you don't think he is, God is in the details of your life. You know, one of the things that I am captivated by is a really good story. I just absolutely love stories. It doesn't matter to me if it's a fairy tale. Uh, It doesn't matter if it's a junior novel or a thriller or a mystery or a fantasy tale or or whatever it is. Uh, If it has a good plot, if it has good character development, I am absolutely hooked and in love with whatever I am reading. And of all the kinds of stories that I love, nothing is better than one of those kinds of stories where uh, there's seemingly all these unrelated details that don't seem to be uh, making sense uh, together, but somehow at the very end they, they come together and they find their importance in the overall plot uh, contributing to the, uh, the resolution of the conflict of the, the story that's been going on. And one movie that I think brilliantly captured this idea is M. Night Shyamalan's uh, 1999 hit, The Sixth Sense. In The Sixth Sense, if you've seen it before, uh, um, you'll remember that it's uh, about this guy named Dr. Malcolm. He is a child psychologist, and he is um, trying to help this little boy uh, named Cole and uh, this, this little boy named Cole claims uh, that he can see people who are deceased. And as a child psychologist, uh, Malcolm wants to help him uh, through that. And as he's trying to help this little boy, Malcolm is seeing how his life is sort of falling apart all around him. He doesn't know why. The interactions that he's having with his wife, they're, they're just not working out. Um, he's struggling to make sense of all these seemingly random details that are going on throughout the story. And then it's at the very end when he comes to the realization that he, in fact, was, was killed in the beginning scene of the movie. And he has been hanging out with this child who can see him uh, because of his special sense, but uh, no one else can. It would explain why his wife was not interacting with him, why things uh, were changing. All these things, all these details at the very end now finally make sense. And after that watershed moment uh, was revealed, Malcolm and us as the audience were able to go back and we're able to see how those little tiny details all came together to make the story finally make sense, but unfolding before our eyes without even realizing it. And one of the reasons I think that we love a story like that is because that, is, that seems to be how life works sometimes, doesn't it? You know, we tend to think that what defines us are those big moments in life 
we think that uh, graduation or the wedding or the, the birth of a, ch- of a child or perhaps an accident or a, a diagnosis or a, a huge mistake or a, a regret that, or maybe even losing someone, that it's those big events that make us who we are when in fact normally we're shaped and we're molded by the mundane. We're shaped and molded by the, the day-to-day the ins and the outs of our reactions and the things that happen to us on a very, very small level. And it's in those tiny details of the ordinary that prepare us for those big moments in life. Now I happen to come from a worldview that believes that God is sovereign over every detail in life. And what I mean by that is that God reveals himself through his word in such a way that he is shown to be intricately involved in every detail of your life in order to uh, make you the person that he has called you to be, to have you do what he has called you to do, and to further his story of redemption on on a major scale through your life. Now, you may be here this morning totally confused because your life just doesn't seem to make sense right now. You may be here this morning facing a situation that you never would have dreamed would have ever happened to you, and you aren't sure how this fits into the overall storyline of your life. Maybe you're here this morning and, and, and you feel that your, your life is rather mundane. Maybe it's, maybe it's boring and you don't see much action happening in your life and you're wondering if, if God indeed does have a plan for your life. Well, this morning, Genesis 11 verses 10 through 32 is meant to show us that God is involved in your life. God is in every single moment of your day. He is in the details in order to make you who, uh, become who he wants you to become, to lead you into doing what he has called you to do, and to glorify himself, working out his plans in your life. So if you have your Bibles with you, uh, let's look in Genesis chapter 11. And read along with me, starting in verse 10. And be praying for me, because some of these names are very difficult. These are the family records of Shem. Shem lived 100 years and fathered Arkpashad, two years after the flood. After he fathered Arkpashad, Shem lived 500 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Arkpashad lived 35 years and fathered Shelah. After he fathered Shelah, Archipod lived 403 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Shelah lived 30 years and he fathered Eber. After he fathered Eber, Shelah lived 403 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Eber lived 34 years and fathered Peleg. After he fathered Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Peleg lived 30 years and fathered Reu. After he fathered Reu, Peleg lived 209 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Reu lived 32 years and fathered Serug. 
After he fathered Serug, Reu lived 207 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Serug lived 30 years and fathered Nahor. After he fathered Nahor, Serug lived 200 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Nahor lived 29 years and fathered uh, Terah. After he fathered Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Terah lived 70 years and fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. These are the family records of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in his uh, father's, uh, Terah's lifetime. Abram and Nahor took wives. Abram's wife was named Sarai, and Nahor's wife was named Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Sarai was unable to conceive. She did not have a child. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, Haran's son, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they set out together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years and died in Haran. Let's pray. Father, would you help us today to get our minds around your work in our lives? Would all these names and this brief situation that's mentioned here transform us to be more confident in you, to be more rejoicing of what you have done through your son, the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, and would he get glory and honor that is due to him today? It's in Jesus' name we ask this. We need to trust that God is sovereign, that he is good, and that he is worthy. And he convinces us of that this morning by asking us to trust in his work in your background. Trust in God's work in your background. You know, the last part of Genesis 11 can easily be one of those chapters that when you're going through a, a reading through the Bible program that you just want to skip over because really it's just a bunch of really long names that are hard to pronounce and, and some almost unbelievable uh, lifespans, uh, although we do hold to the fact that they did live that long. But I want to suggest that the key to unlocking the point and purpose of this section is if we look at it contextually. What is going on in this particular part of Scripture? In other words, a genealogy, especially in this part, is sort of like being in a forest. And if you've ever been in the woods, uh, a large woods anyway, the only thing that you can ever see are the trees that are around you. You have no perspective of the big picture of what's happening. However, if you had a bird's eye view or, or, or one of those drones with a camera on it and you went all the way up and could see the rest of the forest, your position would make sense in regards to the rest of the woods. And that's exactly what we're doing here. Um, we're not just looking at names and ages. We are backing up to remind ourselves of where this fits in in the overall story of God. If we went back a few chapters, we'd see in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 that it recounts the creation of all the universe and of all the wonderful and good things that God had made. Uh, scripture tells us that the best of his creation was us as human beings. We're the only part of creation that was made in God's image, and he was pleased uh, to do that. 
And because of that, they share the highest value in God's eyes compared to everything else in all of the created universe. They were created perfect, and we were created to glorify him in relation, being in perfect relationship with him. However, in Genesis chapter 3, if you'll recall, uh, based on the influence of the serpent, Adam and Eve, who were the first humans, uh, decided to live autonomously apart from the rule and reign of God our Father. And thus sin was born into the world, and you and I, we feel the effects of that even today. You and I inherited sin from Adam, and we feel it in, uh, every day in almost every situation that we are sinners both by birth and we're sinners by choice. Uh, but God was not content to leave that relationship that we had dead on arrival. He wanted that relationship to come back together, so he made a promise. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 13, uh, he uh, gives a promise to Adam and Eve and to the serpent that he would restore all of creation to what it was once supposed to be. And so from Genesis 3.15, he says that he will have one of, of Eve, Eve's descendants will crush the head of the serpent one day and undo everything the serpent did and recreate the world the way that it was meant to be. And so, as we look through Scripture from then on, every story whispers that promise. We're looking forward to the one that would come and one day undo the work of the serpent. Right away we see in Genesis chapter 4 that it wasn't going to be their son Cain. For he only uh, continued the line of sin by murdering his brother uh, Abel. The story moves further and through many centuries to find that the world is desperately wicked and God wants to undo and redo everything and he finds one man, Noah, with whom he'll recreate all of the human race, sends a, a worldwide flood and saves Noah and all of his family. He is obedient to God in building this ark in the middle of a desert where no rain had fallen. And as soon as, Adam come, uh, as, soon as Noah comes out of the ark, we, know, we notice right away that Noah was just as wicked as his ancestors were. And so the story progresses further and, far, uh, further and further. And our passage then comes on the heels of the result of Noah's descendants. In Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, all of the world had come together in one place at Babel uh, in order to defy the Lord once again and live autonomously from him. And the Lord responds in judgment by confusing their language and scattering them throughout all of the world. And even though this scattering because of the, the Tower of Babel can be rightly considered a judgment of God, we also ought to view it as one divine puzzle piece that God is placing into history and using it for redemption that would eventually come in his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 16, it says, these are the family records of Shem. Shem was one of Noah's sons. 
He was the son that, that Noah blessed above all of his other sons. And then for 16 verses, we see nothing but insignificant names and lifespans until we arrive at one named Abram. And we know that this is significant because uh, Moses, who is the, the author of Genesis, starts the genealogy over again with Terah, who is Abram's father. He restarts a new uh, generation. And though the genealogy there focuses on the family of Terah, it is obvious very quickly that the focus shifts to a guy named Abram, who will, we know as Abraham. He will later have his name changed. But as a primer, it's good to know that uh, Abram would be uh, the man that would go into history and be one of the most influential figures in all of human history. Abraham is the father of the faith for both the Jewish, well, three, uh, three groups, the Jewish faith, the Christian faith, and the Muslim faith. So we are talking about a big character, not even a character, a big person from throughout human history. And it's through this man's lineage that God would create a people and eventually a savior and a redeemer of the world, Jesus Christ. And so what this genealogy teaches us is that God, in his sovereignty, uses the insignificant lives of all of these people to arrange the fact that Abram would come from Terah. Everything that was going on in his family line led to this point. God used these people to shape his traits, used these people to shape his personality, and even bring him to lo the location in which he lived. Now, I hate to ruin it for you, but you and I will probably never leave our mark on history anywhere close to the scale that Abraham did. However, God has been no less involved in every aspect of your life, of your ancestry, orchestrating your purpose for here and now. God sovereignly brought great-grandparents from a few different sides and, and grandparents and parents together to bring you to be who you are and where you are with all of your quirks and with all of our personalities and with all of our backgrounds for his glory. And what this ought to tell us is that you are not an accident. You are the point and purpose of God's creative work. He has a point. He has a, uh, a role, a, 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 a job for you as a person to glorify him in all of your days. Acts 17.26 tells us that from one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times, and the boundaries of where they live. You ever thought about that? That the fact that you live where you do was sovereignly chosen by God? 
That's a delightful thought. God knows what he's doing. All of these circumstances from, from generations before you are then put together for this day and place to know, to love, and to serve Jesus. Look at what Ephesians chapter 4, uh, sorry, chapter 1, verses 4 through 6 says. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Before anything existed, you were in the mind of God. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. Those are good words there. This God is worthy of your trust. But not only for your genealogical background, but also the very details of your life. Look with me in verses 28 and 29. Haran died in his native land, in Ur of the Chaldeans, during his father Terah's lifetime. Abram and Nahor took wives. Abram's wife was named Sarai, and Nahor's wife was named Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. So there's two big things that we need to see in just those couple of verses there. The first well, the Bible's a very honest book. Uh, Abram's family was sort of inbred. Abram's married to his sister. That's going to become a very important part uh, of the story here as we move on. Um, and second, we ought to note that he is a pagan. He doesn't know God. He doesn't worship God. His family and cultural heritage are actually idolatrous moon worshipers. Ur of the Chaldeans had this massive uh, three-stage ziggurat. If you don't know what a ziggurat is, i got a picture up there for you. Um, Throw that up there, Jim. Yeah, there it is. It's this tower that they would build that would have all these levels. And as you got higher up, it would uh, result in different, uh, deeper aspects of of, uh, worshiping the moon, uh, of of, uh, Nana, the moon god. There was a royal cemetery outside of this area, that would point to human sacrifice that was part of this moon worship. Uh, Terah's name is closely related to words that mean moon or lunar month. Sarai means queen and was the name of the wife of the moon god Sin. Milka means princess. She was named after the daughter of the moon god. Abram, no doubt, would have participated in this very dark aspect of pagan worship. Yet, despite the fact that he was involved in all of that, God chose him to become the father of our faith. God chose to reveal himself to this man to bring him out of darkness And into his light, he would be the only person in the world at this time that would hear the word of God and would obey it and have a strong lineage of of believers behind him. God, this God that we serve, he's like that. That is what he is like. 
He calls us out of darkness. He calls us out of the the messiness of our lives, out of sin. He calls us out of shame. He calls us out of our guilt. And he points us to the one who redeems us from all of that, Jesus Christ, the descendant and fulfillment of this promise that God is going to give Abraham here in just the next chapter. This would be the one who lived the life that we couldn't live, who died for the punishment that we deserved for our sin, our nature, for living in the darkness and the moral filth that we have. He was raised from the dead to show his power and authority over sin and death. God is calling you today Whatever is in your background, whatever messiness that you have gone through, to come and bring all of that to Jesus, to put it at his feet and trust him alone to rewrite your story, to become who you were created to be. It is the only way in which true life is found. And when we do that, we will find that all of that past baggage, he will redeem us from it for his glory. So we can trust that Jesus is working in our past to reshape our future. But secondly, we need to trust God in our heartbreak. Trust God in your heartbreak. When we think about genealogies, or even family trees, we we usually look at it academically. We go on Ancestry.com or whatever and we see this list of names and it's, it's fun and it's interesting and it's sort of neat to see where you come from. Rarely do we ever think about a genealogy as a record of successful fertility. But as we make our way through this passage, verse 30 sticks out to us. And it demands our attention. We have read through 19 verses of successful genetic lines being passed down. And then in verse 30, it tells us, Sarai was unable to conceive. She didn't have a child. We need to push pause here. This is a big deal. And it will provide the basis for a lot of conflict and heartbreak in the chapters ahead. Infertility is a source of deep suffering for many couples. One in six couples struggle with infertility. At the, after the age of 35, it, it, it's one in four, 25% that struggle. In one study, 63% of women who uh, suffered both an abortion and a divorce say that their, uh, I'm sorry, did I say abortion? Their, their uh, infertility uh, and they suffered divorce, that their infertility caused them greater pain 
in their divorce. In another study, women who experienced either chronic or life-threatening diseases ranked the emotional pain of infertility at the same level as how they felt about their chronic illness. Julie and I have walked with many couples who have gone through the trauma of infertility and that pain is very, very deep. For many women, it hits at the core of their femininity and their identity, yet we rarely talk about it in the church. Many women even avoid coming to church on Mother's Day because they don't want to go through the pain of celebrating something that they never got. And that's very tragic for us in the church. Galatians chapter 6, verse 2 tells us that we ought to bear one another's burdens so we can understand the pain that couples go through. In Sarai's day, to be a barren woman, it was shameful. It was looked at as a curse from the gods. Her, her value was found in, in raising children. Her future care uh, would be uh, predicated on her children that would take care of her in her old, day, in her old age. And yet... She's robbed of that in her infertility. Ian Dugweed, in his commentary, writes, Paradoxically, her inability in this area was a crucial part of God's preparation of her role in his plan. In order for her to be the mother of the child of promise, it was necessary for her to be unable to bear children without the direct intervention of God. Now, I don't want to diminish any pain or suffering that you or a loved one may have faced in whatever life is bringing in this season. It doesn't just have to be infertility. It's whatever pain is part of the curse of life. But I want to encourage you, based on the authority of God's word, that God is at work in your heartbreak. God is working in your pain. This is not the time to resist Him, this is not the time to retreat. This is not the time to give up. This is the time to run to Jesus and embrace him tighter than you've ever embraced him before. In Jesus Christ, he meets us at the very depths of our despair because he has been there before. Look with me in Hebrews chapter 2. This is what the, the writer writes. He says, Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God. For since he himself has suffered when he's tempted, he's able to help those who are tempted. Friends, and we are tempted to despair all the time in our suffering. 
But Jesus has been there and he is with us in it. And you may not see the reason for this suffering now. And I cannot guarantee that you will ever see a reason for this suffering. But one thing I do know is that Moses spent 40 years in the desert shepherding sheep, not having a clue that God was working in his life and preparing him to be the shepherd who would lead his people out of Egypt. I do know that Joseph spent years in prison, falsely accused of rape, and that that entire time, Joseph did not know why he did that until the very end. I do know that Elijah despaired of life. Indeed, he wanted God to kill him because he thought that he was the only prophet that was left on this earth and that Jezebel was going to hunt him down and that there was no point in his life anymore. But yet God used him tremendously in preparing him during those times. I know that David ran for his life from King Saul for a long time, not knowing what God was doing in his life as he was fleeing from him. You see, faith is not always knowing why we struggle right now. If we did, it wouldn't, we wouldn't need faith. But as it is, faith trusts in the pain and in the sorrow that God is at work. It is trusting that he is sovereign even when he seems silent and not there when we are in our darkest times. It is trusting that Jesus meets us even when we feel like we are drowning in life. It is in the midst of the pain that we can rest in Jesus and trust that he works in our heartbreak. And third, we need to trust God in our failed plans. Trust God in your failed plans. Show of hands, how many of you have ever failed at something before? Okay, those that haven't raised their hands, you just failed. Because... Every one of us. I didn't raise my hand. I'll raise that to that. Yes. I have failed more times than I have succeeded. I love what Michael Jordan once said. He said, I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot and missed. I failed over and over again in my life. That is why I succeed. I tell my kids all the time, Failure is often one of the best things that can happen for us because it teaches us an awful lot. But it doesn't always feel like it's a good thing, right? Usually we, we, we feel like it's a disappointment or maybe a, a setback or um, maybe it can bring up feelings of inferiority. Like we're not as good because we failed. Failure is a very good thing. And sometimes, though, failure is how God works out his plans. Verse 31 tells us, 
this, that Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, was Haran's son, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they set out together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. Now, this is pure speculation on my part here. But I am inclined to believe that their migration out of Ur had something to do with the Tower of Babel. They are leaving this area, and I assume that they were part of the plan of this failed attempt to defy God by building a massive tower and trying to reach heaven by themselves. In this massive attempt of a worldwide spectacle that utterly failed, and they were sent out because of a language barrier. I believe Abraham was part of that. But that failed plot set the course for falling right into God's plan. But not without more failure. Verse 31 says that they set out from Ur to the land of Canaan, which is where God was calling Abram to go, but they failed to reach it. Verse 31 says, it goes on to say that when they came to Haran, they settled there. We don't know why they did. All we know is that they, they, they stayed there until uh, Terah died. So get the picture here that here is Abram, who was part of a failed attempt to build this, this massive ziggurat, who was forced to emigrate to a land that he knew nothing about. He stopped short of his goal. His father passes away. And he has a wife that cannot bear children. Talk about, in his mind, the pathway to success. But it is in this state that God brought him in order to prepare him for his call. The very next chapter, in verse 1, the word of the Lord comes to Abram. He had a job for him to do. So what this points us to is twofold. First is that there is a reality that because we live in a world that has fallen, we experience the pain of failure. And that's okay. In fact, it can be very good. But second, it points us to a God who delights to use us in our failures and use us in our disappointments and put it into his plan. We have to trust that when our plans, when our life doesn't go the way that we plan it to go, that somehow this fits into God's plans. Look in Romans chapter 8 and verses 28 and 29. We know that all things, does it say some things? It says all things work together for the good of those who love God who are called according to his purpose. And this is the reason why. For those he foreknew, he also predestined, here is the call for you, to be conformed to the image of 
his son. Why is he working out all of your heartbreaks, all of your disappointments, all of your failures for good? In order to make you be more like Jesus. You know, our backgrounds, our heartbreaks, our failures, our successes, even our entire lives, it's all about Jesus. Every aspect of it. It's only when we trust in Christ and get a biblical perspective of God's process that we can truly now look back at all of those little details and they start coming together. Just like when Dr. Malcolm Crow in the sixth sense realized the truth at the end that all of the little details finally made sense of why things are happening and, and how all the pieces fit together, we need to trust that God is doing something. And you might not see it or you might not even believe it right now, but God is at work in your life because of and through Jesus Christ. Without him, all of this makes no sense and has no point. So why not trust him today? Why not give your life back to him? Why not give your life to him maybe for the first time today? Why not give him your heart, your mind, your soul, your situations? Give it to him and follow him from now on. He is worthy of your trust in regards to your background, your past, your present and your future. He is worthy of taking care of your heartbreaks and he is worthy of taking care of all of your failures for his glory. Trust him. Believe in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, these are, these are difficult words. But Lord, you call us in the same way that you call Abram. You've called us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son. And so, Father, I pray that as there are many broken hearts today, God, I pray that you would be mending them by your grace, for your glory, and for our good. Lord, give us a perspective that even in pain, even in difficult times that God is at work. Even when we don't see why, Lord, help us to live by faith and not by sight. Would you do that miracle in our hearts today by trusting what your word tells us? And it's in Jesus' name that I ask this. Amen. As the worship team comes forward, would you stand with us as we respond to God's word?
to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Go in peace and serve the Lord. Have a great week. And if some of you could stack chairs, that would be great.